Hello again. <laughs> we are rounding out our series through the Proverbs. So we've been moving through the book of the Proverbs. So if you've been with us, I think you've been at some time, some points, surprised uh, that the Proverbs say what they say. Other times, it's really not that uh, world-shaking. You're like, yeah, a lot of people would agree with that. But, you know, do we live it out? So the book of Proverbs is full of wisdom It's a treasure trove of uh, truth applied to real life. And uh, chapter 31, the first paragraph there, what we're going to look at, that first section of Proverbs 31 is about leadership. It's about leadership, applying wisdom for leaders. And as I look at it, and as we read it together today, we'll see that it's specifically for kings, And it might be easy for us to write that off like, well, I'm not a king, so there's another portion of scripture I don't really have to pay attention to, right? Um, But we can think of spheres of leadership, and sometimes some of us wear multiple leadership hats for, for which this wisdom would still apply. We can go to highest levels when we think about the people that we vote for in various offices, Uh, When it's time for elections in in our country, in our state, in our towns, um, what kind of leaders should we be electing? And then we can press it down into other areas of leadership. If you are an employer or a manager, uh, you've got people underneath you. You are supposed to lead with wisdom. If you're a teacher, if you're a coach, Right? In the home, if you're a mom, if you're a dad, you are expected to lead a certain way. And I think what we're going to see here, wisdom for a king, is going to be applicable for heirs in our lives, whether we're trying to figure out what we're supposed to expect of leadership, or we're trying to figure out how am I supposed to be as a leader in my particular situation. And I love the Proverbs I love that they don't mess around, even though it's poetry, which kind of gets lost in the English, but if you're reading in the Hebrew, the poetry is rich. But I don't know about you, but when teachers have tried to get me excited about poetry, I'm like, I don't get it. You know, I just would rather read an article that just tells me the facts, right? But the Proverbs are hard-hitting, clear, practical, no messing around, like this is what it is, and I think you'll appreciate that together with me as we look at it. Proverbs 31, if you look right at the top in verse 1, you see that this is a king. We don't know exactly who he he is, Lemuel. Many think that he wasn't an Israelite, but maybe he proselytized, converted to the faith of of Israel. But really what we're hearing in verses 2 through 9 are words from his mom. And at some point in his life, he wrote these down to share with others. It says the words of King Lemuel, right? So we're hearing it from King Lemuel, but who are the words really from? His mom. An oracle that his mother taught him. So this doesn't sound like something mom said one time. It sounds like she'd tuck him in at night and say the same words over and over again. And you know, as parents, sometimes you're like, maybe it's frustrating for my child. Maybe your child even told you, oh, this lecture again? But one day, they might be able to write out that lecture because you said it so many times, and then it'll click. It'll click. And what he wants is for this to click for us, for this to click for us, 
because if we don't, we'll be foolish. And we've seen throughout the Proverbs that foolishness leads to destruction. Destruction for a nation, for a home, for a marriage, for a school. But wisdom allows us to flourish. So the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. All right, let's go, Mom. Verse 2. What are you doing, my son? That already sounds like some of our some of our lectures. What are you doing? Right? What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Now, this is tricky to translate because when you read it in the ESV there, what are you doing? It either sounds like an exasperated mom who's so sick of his son doing terrible things. That, 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 that might be true. Or a curious mom who's knocking at the door like, what are you doing in there? You know, I don't think that's it. In the Hebrew, it's just, what, my son? What? Some go, well, I think she just is calling for attention. So the NIV, if you're using the NIV translation, listen, listen to me. Or the CSB translation, what shall I say? She's contemplating, what shall I say about your kingship? ESV takes more of the route like, Let me ta- I want to talk to you about what you're doing. I think however you translate it, what she's, going to, what she's doing is prefacing this lecture by saying, you can't just be a king. You have to contemplate what you do as a king. You hold an office, you, to- you hold a title, you wear a crown, you think you're, you're hot stuff because you have the office, the title, you've got the big desk, the corner office. You're the top dog at your work. You think you have to be a certain way. That just raises the bar on how important it is for you to be a certain kind of king, a certain kind of leader. And she prefaces it with this weighty, endearing term. I didn't notice this at first glance, but when I started reading some other commentaries on this, she kind of goes backwards through time. She calls him her son. Then she refers to her womb. And then she goes to the vows before the pregnancy, right? So vows that lead to the consummation, that leads to the pregnancy, so womb, and then here's the son. So she's like reversing back through time, going like there's this long prep and long lead into your moment right now. And I don't take this flippantly. This is serious for me. She's speaking with love, she's speaking with weightiness, and that what you do is a reflection of me, you're going to do things a certain way. What are you doing, my son? So be a certain kind of king is the preface, and really this lecture could be called Wisdom for a King, and we'll see how that applies for wisdom for leadership in any sphere where you've got people depending on you, people that are under you. Again, This applies to the sphere of the home. Uh, I don't think it's by accident that this is given to us in the context of a mom speaking to a son. She's exercising her leadership and pressing that down into her son so that he is a, a certain kind of leader. And so the wisdom for leadership applies to the home, to the home for moms and dads. In some cultures, this is sort of lost on us, but I thought of wisdom for the grandmother or the great-grandmother or the grandfather and the great-grandfather. I think in some cultures, we're kind of like, meh, they're old. In other cultures, they get the best seat. You know what I mean? The patriarch or the matriarch of the family. We, don't, we, we go and get our education and our degrees that they never got, and suddenly we think we're hot stuff. They have wisdom 
of years. So that's a sphere of leadership that we need to be thinking about in the workplace as you think about leading other people, etc., etc. So here's what she gives them. Two instructions. It could have been a really, really long lecture, but it's two instructions. Pretty simple. And those two instructions could be because they're the things that he was bad at. I think the advantage of this being at the end of the Proverbs is we see these are two examples everybody's bad at. That's why they're here. It's not just Lemuel. She's picking on him because of his uh, mess-ups. I think she's warning him. She's coaching him based on two areas that leaders fail in probably most often. We can think of others, and there are others throughout all the Proverbs, but these two are big ones. And here's the first one in verse 3. This one's quick. She doesn't unpack it. She just states it in one verse. Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. Now look, you can just read that out of context and go, any leader should just remain single and all women are bad. What's the rest of Proverbs 31 about? The excellent woman. There's no way he means women are bad. So we know that. There's no way it means women are bad. That would be unbiblical. That would be against the grain of the whole Bible. So it doesn't mean women are bad. So what does it mean, don't give your strength to women? Does it mean uh, celibacy? No, I don't think so, because we don't get that throughout the rest of the Proverbs. We don't get that throughout the rest of, rest of Scripture. What we have is a parallelism where the first line A matches second line B. In other words, you have to translate them together. What does it mean to give your strength to women? What it means is when you let that woman mess you up, and now you can't be a leader anymore because of some sexual scandal. How many Proverbs do we have on that? A lot. A lot. So it's not a call to singleness, like single leaders are going to be better than married leaders. It's being a one-woman man, or if you're applying this to women, a one-man woman. That doesn't mean you can't be single. It just means if you're going to be a leader, you need to be chaste, wise, and keep the marriage bed holy. It is giving your strength to women in the sense that you are destroyed by that. Your ways, giving your ways to those who destroy kings. Whether they mean to destroy the king or not, the scandal will bring your kingship down. You can think of those fears that I talked about. How is the household where uh, there's not sexual fidelity between the mom and dad? How does that tend to go for households? Not great. And not, not great. And I think started going, well, what other spheres does this press into? Pastor, elder? How, how, many, how many more pastors do we need to see? Wow, he was such a great preacher. He was so gifted. Wow, I followed all his YouTubes. I don't know about you, sometimes I look at my bookshelf and I'm like, man, I got this Joker's books on my shelf. I've given away this fool's books to people. It's heartbreaking and it's heart-wrenching. Someone's so gifted and then ruined by scandal. You think of politicians. I was just Googling earlier, you know, top scandals in America. 
Some of them are about money. At least half of them are about sexual scandal. So we're not even in the church. We're still just out there in the world, and it's still ruining stuff. You think of teachers. Teachers that are inappropriate with children. I mean, I just, I just saw an article two weeks ago about a female teacher who tried to get the boy to keep it quiet. Think of coaches. Don't got to go very far. Soon as my daughter got on the basketball team in her high school, it was just on the heels of a prior coach being fired for being inappropriate with girls. Everywhere. Any sphere. If you're a coach, if you're a teacher, if you're a principal, if you're an employer, if you're a manager, if you're a mom, you're a dad, husband, wife, this will take you down if you're not careful. Do not give your strength to women. You can put in there because of the, the context. Do not give your strength to inappropriate relationships because it'll destroy kingship. In other words, you don't get to just be king because you have the office. If you don't behave appropriately to uphold that office, that office will be destroyed through your actions. You will undo it, right? That's one of the ways you'll undo it. What's the other instruction? The second one. I said there's two. The second one takes up a couple more verses. It says in verse 4, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So let's, let's pause there because it really just bleeds into the end of it seamlessly, which is beautiful. But pause on that second instruction real quick. First one, watch your ways with regard to sexual fidelity. The second one, watch your drinking. Now some, many maybe, interpret this as a call to not drink at all. And I I don't want to go on a 20-minute digression here on defending drinking. One, because I'm not your guy to defend drinking. I, I think if you give up drink, good for you. Good for you. All kinds of warnings in, in Scripture that tell us if, if as soon as you cross over the line, that's foolishness, and there's a lot of hurt waiting for you on the other side of that line. But if you want me to stand up here and preach that drinking alcohol in any form at all, even one sip, one drink is a sin, I'm not your guy there either because that's not what Scripture says. And I don't think this verse is saying that. I think this verse is saying drinking to the point where you forget what you're doing as a king. That's what it says. You're drinking to the point of inebriation, you're clouding your judgment so you can't keep the laws straight, right? You're, you're, you're not remembering with crisp clarity what you're supposed to be remembering. As he says, uh, verse 5, lest they, kings, drink and forget what has been decreed. You're forgetting the laws that you're supposed to uphold. And you actually end up perverting the rights of the afflicted. Rather than helping people, Your cloudy judgment is keeping you from being the help to people that you're supposed to be. And so you need to make sure you're not drinking to that point. I think some people don't know where that line is. They don't know how to respect that line. I think those people need to really strongly consider abstinence. Would it hurt you to not drink? Probably not. Would it hurt you to drink? Probably. 
a recent stat I saw, oh, actually not that recent, but maybe a couple years ago I, I preached on this, so you can go back a little bit if you want more on this topic. But then one of the stats that I saw that seemed legit was, I think it was 40%, 40% of people who start drinking end up alcoholic. I mean, that's a big percentage. A lot of us can think back through our families how alcohol was behind the sexual scandal. Alcohol was behind the abuse. Not as an excuse, but it, it plays a part. You're losing, you're losing your ability to keep clear judgment in line for what is appropriate, what is good, what is wise, and what is foolish. So strong drink, if you're heavy with it, if you cross the line with it, it blurs your judgment and impedes your ability to lead for a king, to lead his people, for a coach to lead her team, for a teacher to lead the class, etc. All the spheres, these two things apply. So we can think of people who've, uh, through strong drink, have been ruined. Some of it is personal to me, because I don't have to go far in the family tree to find that. I don't have to go far to find that. So we need to be careful. I don't think it's calling for complete celibacy with regard to women. I don't think it's calling for complete abstinence with regard to drink, but it is making you recognize both of those categories have real firm guardrails, and if you don't respect the guardrails, you go over the cliff. It's a warning. Mother to a son. She's seen it. It's all over the Proverbs. And here's the reason why. And this is what's beautiful. The reason why isn't to retain your title as king. That doesn't matter here. What matters is the people. The people that God has put underneath you are depending on you to be the leader you're supposed to be. And when you don't follow these instructions and destroy your leadership, what you're doing is you're destroying the people. Look at what it says. We'll back up to verse 6. Give strong drink to the one who's perishing, the one who's dying, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So we start seeing that uh, the reason why the king isn't supposed to drink is because the people that are in pain and under some oppression, they're afflicted, they're in steep, a deep poverty, He's saying, they can drink to forget their poverty, but if you drink and forget their poverty, how can you help them in their poverty? They can drink to forget, but if you drink and forget, how can you help them? I don't think what this is saying is the best policy for people in poverty is get them drunk. Let's do it. Let's roll out a program of getting people, let's get them drinking, and if they can just forget their pain, then we don't have to help them. That would be stupid. And this isn't a a book of stupid sayings. This is a a book of wise sayings, right? That would run contrary to the rest of Scripture. It's a little sarcastic, and his focus isn't on whether poor people should drink. His focus is on the king's drinking causes them to be unable to help the people in poverty. It's not commending drunkenness if you're underneath a certain tax bracket, right? What it is saying is those that are in leadership have a greater responsibility to think clearly and think clearly so that they can help the people that are depending on them. That's the, that's the entire goal of this whole oracle. 
Verse 7, let them drink and forget their poverty, their bitter distress, the fact that they're perishing from verse 6. What should you do with your clear mind? What should you do with your uh, unclouded judgment? Verse 8, open your mouth for the mute. In other words, speak for those who can't speak. Speak for those who don't have a platform. Speak up for those who don't have your position. If they speak, no one listens. If you speak, people listen. So use your mouth to speak. And how are you going to do that clearly if your judgment is clouded, if you're forgetting your decrees? Open your mouth for the mute. Open your mouth for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, verse 9. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. So we'll do this briefly. But I think before we move on into further application of how we can live this out, we need to recognize that this kingship theme is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect and true king. And this is what you learn when you read through the Bible. You read through the Bible and you get to the book of Judges. You've heard of the book of Judges. You get to the book of Judges. They didn't have kings yet. And the people are a mess, right? The people are... They're crazy. It's crazy town in the book of Judges. And as you read through, you're like, oh, that's kind of rated R. Oh, that's kind of crazy. What is going on with these people? It just gets crazier as you read through the Judges. And every once in a while, the author of the Judges, like, peeks behind the curtain and tells you, it's because they didn't have a king. Back to the story. Craziness, craziness, crazy town. Hey, it's because they didn't have a king, right? And you're like, yeah, I'm thinking they need a king. You know, like if you're picking up on the not-so-subtle hints. And then you get to First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and they try one king, and he's terrible. And then David, he's really good, but what messes David up? Sexual scandal. Instruction number one messes up David. He kind of half recovers, but then his kids don't respect him. His own child is trying to overthrow him in his own kingdom, and he's kind of a messed-up king. And then Solomon, behind the Proverbs, Watch your ways with women. And what messed up Solomon? Instruction number one. And so you've got this, they they got a king, but no king really fit the bill. No king really led them the way they were supposed to be led. And so all of scripture is longing for a king that can actually do that. Jesus comes on the scene and fulfills this proverb all the way through. Jesus comes to a mother. And Jesus is born uh, through vows, not that the mother made, vows that God made. Jesus was vowed by God as the Messiah, and that's how Mary had Jesus. Jesus through the womb as a new man, the new Adam, the new David, to fulfill God's promises to his people. He didn't give his strength to women in verse 3. Verse 4, about strong drink. Have you ever been struck by the scene of Jesus on the cross and they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. And he's like, I don't want that. And then they offer him sour wine, and he's like, let me get that. What's up with that? I'm not an expert. I was kind of looking into that a little bit when I was reminded of verse 4 in connection with Jesus. But it seems that the wine mixed with myrrh is to kind of take the edge of the pain off. It's a narcotic and he's like, no, I'm enduring pain for people, right? I'm taking suffering for people. I'm not going to shortcut it. 
Or the second one was to prolong it, because let's give him this and see if see how long we can drag this out, sort of reading between the lines. Let's see if he's really Elijah. And that one that prolongs it and kind of wakes him up a little bit, he drank that one. So it's not about whether he's drinking wine or not drinking wine. What it's about is taking suffering rather than dodging suffering. And so we can be reminded of not him not taking strong drink so that he has not just unimpaired judgment, but unimpaired suffering for the people that are afflicted under him, right? So as a king, he comes to rescue us from affliction, and that's what he's doing in the cross. That's what he's doing by not taking that strong drink on the cross. We can keep going as we go forward, but the rights of the afflicted, you remember when Jesus was in the synagogue and he stood up in front of people and read from Isaiah and read that the one who's going to come and rescue the afflicted and rescue the prisoners and rescue the poor, I'm him. I'm it. And then he just sits down. He doesn't even preach a sermon. He's like, this verse is here. I'm here. And then he sits down. And they're like, what? You know? So he, he fulfills this as the perfect king. You go fast forward to Revelation 19, and he's coming in, riding his white horse. He's coming in hot. He's there to rescue his people, to put down wickedness forever. And that text tells us he is faithful and true. He is a righteous judge, the king who's come to be the final king. We don't have to look for any more kings, any more leaders. He brings in and ushers in peace and righteous judgment. And behind him on the white horse are all the afflicted saints going, here he is, to finally put an end to all this craziness, because it didn't stop in the book of Judges. We live in a crazy world. And Jesus rides a white horse to do that. He comes phase one to establish a way for us to come to the table, to be in, and then phase two, to close the door to the ark and then take care of wickedness. So we don't want to be, that to be lost on us. However, however, and this is an increasing trend in churches, especially in circles that I, I run with, we look at a text like this, we're like, nobody's a good king. And we go, well, Jesus is the perfect king. Let's all praise Jesus. And then we, that's where the sermon ends. And then we just stand and we praise Jesus for being a good king. And that's, that's not complete. And the reason why that's not complete is because Jesus didn't just die and suffer on the cross in order to forgive us and then just thank him for getting us in, but to transform us and change us to be what we couldn't be before, right? Transforming by the renewing of our minds, not conforming to the pattern of the world. We change because Christ is king. So here's how it goes. We read this passage. Here's what it looks like to be a good leader. We recognize I'm not really a great leader. Jesus came and fulfilled that perfect leadership for us so that now we are empowered to fulfill this passage. Not so we can go, well, Jesus took care of it so I can live however I want. Jesus took care of it so that now I can be the wise king, the wise queen, the wise manager, the wise coach, the wise teacher, the wise husband, wife, mom, dad, patriarch, matriarch of my family. Jesus steps in to bring you into that wisdom. So as we look at that, We can apply it to our own lives with regard to how we view government, officials, elections, voting, our own households. And I'm going to just bear my heart with you. When I read this passage and I'm looking at it, I'm like, man, this is awesome. Yeah, don't give strength to women. Yup, I'm going to preach that, brother. I'm going to preach that. Verse 4, yup, can't wait to preach that about drink. Got it. Great. And then it starts talking about people in poverty. It starts talking about the mute, the destitute judging righteously, defending the rights of the poor and needy. 
It's talking about justice. And some of you might amen me, maybe not out loud, but when you hear about justice now, in today's, you can't turn on the radio without hearing about justice. Turn on the news and hear about justice. All of our schools and academies, seminaries, all they talk about is justice, social justice this, social justice that. And then I get to the end of a scripture passage that talks about justice, and I'm like, can I skip to the excellent woman? Now, some of us need to be checked because justice is God's realm. Not, that justice is not the realm of a particular political party. God is concerned about what is just and what is right. And we don't want to be so callous because of certain trends and certain things that people are saying in certain circles that we just don't want to talk about justice anymore. We're supposed to be for justice. In every single sphere in which you're in, you're supposed to lead justly. So don't let maybe a particular politicians sour the word for you. We need to hear it, not just hear it, we need to be it. We need to be God's justice in this world to the extent of our spheres. I can't do much about the spheres in which I'm not a leader. But the spheres in which I'm a leader, I need to, I need to judge with wisdom. Right? I need to judge with righteousness to make sure that if somebody is afflicted and I can help with that, I need to make sure they're not afflicted. Now, I don't think in our country either political party is for affliction. The argument is, what do you do about affliction? Now, I know some say one party doesn't care about the poor and the other party does. I think it's really easy to argue the opposite. You say you care about the poor, but you haven't done jack. In all these cities in which you're in, you're in charge of, there's still poverty. So neither party's really getting it right. What we need to do as Christians is to make sure we're for justice, but we define justice biblically. Let the Bible provide the terms and definitions for what is just, and then let's try to apply that in our spheres of influence, whether it's the home, the workplace, schools, politics, wherever we're able to have our fingerprints, we need to make sure that we apply justice in ways that the Bible defines. It is ironic that we live and work and vote in a nation that is really loud about these last couple verses and really confused about the first two instructions that she gave Lemuel. Let's, let's not put guardrails on sexuality. How about everybody just does whatever they want? And then they call that justice. That's, that's backwards. Our, we live in a very confused time. Where we're like, what we need are leaders at the top who let people do whatever they want sexually. But if that leader does something off sexually, then we hold the leader accountable. And we're starting to lose that. Once we get to the point where we're like, well, if we have a leader who is sexually accountable, but we want that leader to make sure that we don't have these old, rigid, Christian, Judeo-Christian, terrible, barbaric, you know, Neanderthal laws and rules about sexual ethics, well then that person should enjoy the same freedom. Pretty soon we'll have a country where we don't even have rule number one at the highest points of leadership in our country. I think we're going to get there fast as we think, see things spiraling out of control. 
I couldn't imagine addressing certain things from, from I was going to say the pulpit, but whatever, you know. Five years ago, ten years ago, the things that I have to talk about now. And then several years from now, I think we'll have to go up here and explain to people that touching little boys is inappropriate. And we're getting there so fast. We live in a country, we live in a nation that in the name of justice puts down, snuffs out, kills the most mute, the most defenseless, the people with the least voice in our world are babies. Babies from the womb, to go back to verse 2. And it is a matter of justice to let people do it. And it's unjust or unjust if you shut it down in one state and now you got to make me travel to another state to go kill my baby. And that's what's not just. And you see how backwards that is just from this, just from this proverb. Allowing that child to have life and rise up to positions of spheres of leadership to help other people. So we need to define justice the way Scripture defines it. One of those definitions is those who don't have a voice need a voice. Those who don't have a voice need a voice. I'm as frustrated as many of you when it comes to um, the whole racial reconciliation push. Okay, I feel sometimes like I'm in this middle place where on the one hand, the rioting, the smashing of stores, it's craziness. It's craziness, and there's no excuse for any of that. On the other hand, sometimes people over here in this camp are like, there's no such thing as racism, you're so stupid. I'm like, why don't you just take a walk in the shoes of the brother for a little bit first? We don't listen, and that lack of listening has caused frustration here, and that frustration is inexcusable. But we just don't want to be complicit in the not listening not hearing someone's story. I think when we sit, we listen, we have conversations, we build bridges with people. That, that steam that's bubbling and causing the, the, the pot to shake, you can kind of take the lid off a little bit. I want to hear your story. right? I want to understand and not just lump you in with everybody else or just be so frustrated with these conversations that I don't want to have those conversations anymore. We need better voices in our society because too many of the voices are coming through TV and movies. I'll close with this. My wife and I went to a, a movie theater back when we still went to movie theaters. I can't remember the last time we went. I don't really miss it, honestly. But anyway, we went to a movie, and I sat down next to two minority uh, young guys, and his keys were in my cup. I didn't say anything. I, I didn't think anything of it. But as soon as I sat, he, he did one of those shoulder shrugs without a voice, like, oh, let me... Take, and he took his keys and wallet or whatever out of my cup. And I was like, oh, thanks, man. You know, but I didn't put anything. I didn't even have anything. Sat, watched the Spike Lee movie. By the time the Spike Lee movie was over, this dude stood up while the credits were rolling and just stared down at me, like three feet from me. I was like, okay. I just kind of leaned over like I'm watching the credits, which I'm not, but what am I going to do, stare back? It was weird. I just felt this heat coming from him the lights come on the sweepers are coming in those two guys leave and I just tell my wife I'm like hey let's just hang out for a minute you know just to make sure they're gone you know I don't know waiting for me in the hallway or something uh 
by the time we got out, they were gone. But what, what struck me was he went from, oh, let me move my keys. And then when he got the indoctrination, which was the Spike Lee movie, now he wants to fight? What am I going to do, sit there and be like, um, I'm Hispanic. I don't know. Like, I don't know. What, what, what am I supposed to say there? A lot of the things that we're catching out there are designed to make you angry. As for those of us that amen that really easily, a lot of the stuff we watch on our Fox News channels is also designed to make you angry. And it's very one-sided. It's very one-sided. Christians define justice from here, from here. Those who need help, we help. Those that we have the ability to help, we use that ability to help. How do we do that well? We live lives of wisdom so that we can think clearly, so that we can see people really see people. Some of us might be so inebriated by our work, workaholism, that we can't see our own kids and the things they struggle with. That's not just. It's not just alcohol. It's the things that cloud our judgment and make our lives so busy and make our minds so clouded that we can't really see the issues and the problems that people are struggling with right in front of us, our own staff, our own employees, our own students, the members of our own team for a coach or something like that. People that are right there depending on us for help, we need to be able to see that clearly, define it biblically, and apply the help where we're able to help. This could easily be a five-hour sermon, right, just going on because it's so complicated. But the basics, returning to the basics, is we don't want to lose grip on justice because that's God's term. But we don't want to mash it and conform it into what we want justice to be because it's God's term. And we lead with his wisdom to apply biblical justice to the people that depend on us. Let's pray. Fathers, we close in this song. We want to leave here confident that you will continue to give us the wisdom we need to follow you uh, with wisdom. And as we follow you, others who depend on us would benefit from the wisdom we get from you. As we close in the song, help us to understand that better, commit to it, and leave here with a better sense of looking out for the helpless, the destitute, in the best ways that we can with wisdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in a song together.